Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with interviews conducted over the years and during the pandemic with playwrights, directors, actors, and producers. This Encore podcast was first posted on January 22nd, 2018. My guest is John Kolvenbach, who is the playwright and director of Real to Real, a world premiere at the Magic Theater in San Francisco, Fort Mason Center, January 31st to February 25th, 2018. John Kolvenbach is the author of several plays, including Goldfish and Mrs. Whitney, his play, Love Song, was produced in London, where it was nominated for an Olivier Award as Best New Comedy. John Kolvenbach, Real to Real, what it says in the Magic Theater's materials, it's the story of a 55-year-old marriage through recorded conversation, arguments, and noises. But that really doesn't tell us too much about what exactly <laughs> we'll be seeing. When the lights go down and come up, what are people seeing? You're going to see a Soho apartment from 1995, a kind of artist garret, a, a beat-up Soho loft from the old days. And then at the edges of that, you're going to see four actors. Two of them are in their 70s and 80s, and two of them are in their late 20s. So we're going to see the story of one relationship between a guy named Walter and a woman named Maggie. It starts in 1995 and goes through 2050, running into the future, obviously. So we meet them when they're 27. We spend some time with them then, played by the younger actors. We see them again when they're 42, still played by those same two younger actors. And then we see them far into the future when they are 81 and 82, played by our two older actors. So it's the story of a 55-year marriage, told non-sequentially, actually. It's told out of time. The whole thing is told in sound. So we're using sound in as many ways as we could think of to use it. So there's onstage foley. There is certainly dialogue because it's play. There is onstage music made by these actors. There is bits of poetry, bits of sort of uh, free verse stuff. And all of the sound that we're hearing is produced by these four actors that we see on stage. Somewhere across between a, a radio play and a play and a performance piece. And this will be the world premiere. Let's go back a bit. What was the spark that led you to this particular play, the, the, the idea, as well as the way it's pulling together? The idea was to try to make a play that is about intimacy, that it actually is an intimacy. That the thing itself, the thing that we're making, is a kind of play that sort of whispers in the ear of the audience. You know, I always wanted to try to write something about a relationship. It's difficult to find a new way to do that, obviously. And I also think it's difficult to find a way to speak about relationship, which is actually true. One of the things that got me into it, I don't know if you remember the people have been saying, I'm sure for centuries, but the first time I heard it was about the Clintons, about Hillary and Bill Clinton, about how you can't ever really know what someone's actual marriage is like. The idea that they get they put the public face out there, but what's happening between Hillary and Bill 
behind closed doors. We never really know. It came up for the first time in the Lewinsky scandal. And this play has nothing to do with the Clintons, but the idea that you can't know a marriage is sort of where I started. My own parents are Midwestern people and not expressive of emotion particularly. And so the mystery of their marriage was a big part of our childhood. We had no idea what their private life was like. We know, I still don't know, actually. So the idea for the play was to try to make what is unknown in a marriage, not only known, but manifest, and to do it through sound, to use sound, because so much of intimacy is carried in sound, a lover's whisper in your ear, and to use sound to sort of not only tell the story, but to whisper in the audience's ear in that same way. And so to talk about intimacy in a way that was intimate was sort of the original idea. Was there any thought at any point that there might be some other actors in the play who would only see this from the outside and maybe get different impressions? Well, the the actors that we have are playing multiple parts. So oh, okay. when we see them, they're playing these two people, but they will do performances of probably another half a dozen people who are also in this world. The only time that we see them moving around inside the apartment, they're Walter and Maggie. The other times when they're portraying other people, they're essentially vocal performances. They're sitting in chairs at the edge of the stage as if they're contributing to the performance of the play in a way that's purely auditory, if you get my meaning. So people on the phone being performed live by live actors. Also, the the woman in the play is an artist and she presents kind of sound collages when we're playing these sound collages, she will have picked up snippets of dialogue. So we're performing all those live. She has characters in her sound collages. The live actors are portraying those characters. So it gets pretty complicated after a while. John Colvenbach, I found an article you'd written in 2006 about how you create a play. <laughs> I'd like to read that myself. I have no idea. <laughs> it starts with character. At the beginning, when you're thinking about intimacy, the first thing is you're thinking about these two characters. Yeah, that's right. That's right. What I usually do is I try to find the voice of the character by writing stuff that usually doesn't end up in the play. I write tons of uh, dialogue and monologue in order to try to find the kind of essential voice of each of the characters. And then you ultimately are trying to find out what they want. And then by finding out what they want, you can find a plot because they would be trying to get it. So that's generally how it worked, yeah. When you say you're finding the plot from what they want, are you writing that down like this is what this character wants, this is what that character wants, or is it just more talking, let them talk for themselves? Yeah, so there's let them talk for themselves, and then they will stumble upon, you'll stumble upon them saying a certain thing, which might be useful, and you think, oh, I see how that could be a scene. I see how that could be the spine of a character. I see how that could be the spine of an entire play. So that whenever one of the characters who you're sort of cooking up in your brain admits to a desire, and you might write that on a three by five card and tack it up on the wall and under really? the, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I do. And then once you have enough cards on the wall, you start to try to order them and move them into a, a identifiable structure. And then you can go back to the beginning and start writing. At what point does the character history, I mean, all, all of the things that have happened to the character, at what point does that emerge? In the monologue phase. Okay. Sometimes, you know, the, 
it is a little bit like listening to another person. Obviously, it's not exactly like that. You can get the character going on a particular topic. If you need to know, say, about the guy's mother, you can get him either write a scene between them, which will never end up in the play, or just get him speaking about his mother to his best friend and, and some confidant, and you can hear what the sort of deepest, darkest part of that relationship is. That might not end up in the play either, but uh, sometimes it does. Now, at that point, you're beginning to get the characters' voices down, right? Yeah. But in that interview, you also mentioned the voice of the play. How is the voice of the play different from the voices of the individual characters? Yeah. So I think that the voice of the play has a little bit more to do with theme. So for instance, this play is about intimacy. So the voice of the play has some delicacy to it. It's less bombastic than some of the stuff I've written. It's less, it's a little less loud than some of the stuff I've written. So sometimes the, the voice of the play comes out of the character, but most often the voice of the play comes out of what you're trying to talk about. In this case, we're trying to talk about a very private, world of sort of domestic relations. And so the voice of the play is a little lighter, a little bit more delicate, a little softer than some of the other stuff I've written. When I talk to novelists, very often they kind of go, well, you know, the themes, the ideas, that's all, you know, you guys who are watching it. I'm not really affected by it at all. But it seems <laughs> it's on some level, yes. On some level, no. Yeah. But I think what's happening is they're so involved in the entire writing, which is a lot more writing in terms of number of words than what you're doing, mm. that they can kind of let some of that go and let it drift up. But for you, it sounds like the thematic element is a little bit more conscious. Yeah, it's certainly conscious at the beginning, and then you let it go. So what happens for me is that I'm always writing about something. There's always something in the case of this play. It's writing about what it is to be with somebody over time, what it is to be with another person over that much time. What do you lose? What do you gain? In what way is it a prison? In what way is it a kind of gift? And what happens ultimately uh, to a relationship when you add the element of 55 years, you know? So I knew that that's what I was going to speak about. And then you let go of whatever your opinion is and you actually do the real writing. And then what happens in plays is that when you see it with an audience, when you see it read, everybody who is there has an idea about what the play is about. They say, oh, well, I see what that is. That's about X, Y, and Z. So you have a quick idea of how your work is being interpreted. I don't know if novelists ever quite get that in the same way, a lot of audience, don't. right? So if you're a playwright, you know a lot by having it done out loud in a room of 30 or 50 or 200 people, you can't hide anything, including your own understanding of the play. You can't pretend not to get it. Your own work, if an entire audience is experiencing it, it's very clear what they think. John Kolvenbach, what will happen with a, with a novelist is the novelist will have a few readers and yeah. then, of course, the editor and that's it. But it's not going to be played out. So they're not going to see the interaction, the physical interaction at all. And they're not going to get the kind of feedback, I guess, that you're getting because you know you'll be in front of an audience. That's right. So the obvious thing would be if you write a joke and no one laughs, then it's no longer a joke. It's something else. So either, you know, you, you, it's very clear if, if 
you write something that is intended to elicit a laugh. And if it doesn't, it no longer can be considered a joke. It has to be, you have to th either cut it or think about it as something else. So I guess there's a way in a novel, you could write something that you intended to be funny and never really know whether it was considered to be funny or not. In a play, you know very quickly whether it's working or not in a lot of ways. Well, you might, but it's also the actor putting it over too. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> that's, that's why you try to find the best cast you can, which we have, by the way, on this show. Amazing cast. When you're ready, it means the play is fully assembled. You'll play it in front of 10, 15, 20 people first? Uh, fewer. So I, I write a lot of drafts. Uh, the first draft, I don't show to anybody. The first probably dozen drafts, I never show to anybody. And then once I have something that I think is reasonably coherent, I'll read it around my kitchen table in New York and just with actors and me and then do rewrites based on that. And then the group grows and then maybe there'll be five people the next reading after another set of rewrites and then maybe 20. And then for this play, I came here to The Magic in December of 2016 and we did the Virgin Series workshop. And so that is uh, three days, I think, of rehearsal and a little bit of rudimentary staging. And then we sort of performed it for uh, probably a, a hundred or so people. And so this play is a little complicated and I wasn't sure, honestly, whether it made any sense at all and whether it worked until that reading. And so we did the reading and, and the audience was very receptive and sweet. And so we learned a lot about the play, which I then made changes, but we also learned that it was a play, which you never totally know. Uh, so that was very affirming. What do you mean by you know something is a play or isn't? What what would be an example where it's not a play? If it, just, if it doesn't hold together, you know, and I, I've certainly written those where you sort of write it and you think you have something and you, it's, uh, you think you're onto something and then the audience just, it just sort of dissipates and falls apart and the audience ends up thinking, well, I thought that was going somewhere else. I didn't totally follow it. You know, that would be something that's not a play. It needs to either be reworked or scrapped. And that stuff is extremely apparent in the theater. If you're sitting with an audience of over 30 people, it's extremely clear whether they're interested or not. It's, it's also clear whether they think it's funny or whether they think it's dramatic, but also whether it's just doing the fundamental job of a script, which is holding somebody's interest. And so if it's not, you can certainly tell. Well, in those early versions, did you have the sound element in there? Yeah, from the beginning. So that was always part of the, the concept. Yeah, we actually haven't done some of that work yet. We, <laughs> so There's a lot of sound effects in the play, a million sound effects. And so we are in the process now. We've only been rehearsing for three days, so we've got some time. But we're in the process of figuring out how we're going to make all of these sounds. And what we're trying to do is never use anything electrical, never use anything that plugs in. We're never going to push a button and have it make a sound. We're always going to try to make it in the most mechanical way we can to make the whole thing kind of a old-fashioned, homespun, wooden works clock of a play, if you know what I mean. So we'll get to that starting tomorrow, <laughs> trying to figure out how do you make a sound of a something? I don't know what it will be. How do you make the, the simplest one would be the sound of a baby crying. The most complicated one would be, I don't even know, we've got some crazy ones, car crashes, all kinds of stuff in there. So we'll have to try to figure all that out. Is this one of the reasons why you decided to be the director? Uh, <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I love to direct, and I always feel like the process sort of begins when you 
start writing the play, which for me on this one was about a year and a half ago. And it really feels like a complete process only when you have delivered the actual production of the play to an audience. And so I love doing it. It feels like one big continuous thing. It's different. Writing is way different from directing, but uh, it's still part of the same project, which is to uh, put it across. And so this feels like the last half of that effort, the writing being the first half. One of the times I talked to Loretta Greco several years ago, uh, she made mention that she doesn't think a play is usually in its final stage until at least two or maybe even three different productions. Do you agree with that? It depends on how much you workshop it, and it also depends on the playwright, and it also depends on what happens during the first production. So if you even have an extra week on a production, you can make changes which you normally couldn't. And if you have workshopped it in a healthy way with a healthy company, then you can be ready with the first one. That said, I almost always change something about a play after the first production because you learn some super simple mechanical stuff about a play. Like, can we actually make that costume change during that period of time? Or do we need to write more dialogue to cover the change? And so some of those kinds of things you can sort of guess at, but it's hard to really know them until you've actually done it. And also sometimes the effect of a play can't really be known until you've done it a dozen, a dozen performances, sometimes at the same place then you're like, oh, no, okay, now we know what it is, because you can be deceived by a one-off sometimes. One of your plays, Love Song, uh, wound up being directed in London and in New York. What I found curious was that it was reviewed twice in the New York Times. One review was a rave, and the other was a pan. On some level, if people are going to have that kind of difference of opinion about the same play... Where do you as a playwright or director step in and go, well, I believe this one or that one. What do you do about that? I don't believe any of it. You know what's happened recently, which is kind of funny, is that it used to be, I've been writing plays for 25 years, and it used to be that the critics were the only ones you would hear from in print. And what's changed now with social media and Yelp especially, and the way that everybody writes reviews, now the critics will be maybe the most read voice, but maybe not. And sometimes your play can be responded to by hundreds of people instead of what it used to be, which would be a half a dozen critics. So that's an interesting change, an interesting shift. It's always used to be the point of view of most playwrights that, you know, you didn't want one person's opinion to be the final vote on whether your show worked or not. I'm not sure that it's any better now, but it's certainly different because now there are a million voices out there weighing in and the voices that used to be much more important are a little bit less so, but the negative would be nobody likes to get, no one likes a pan. It doesn't matter who you are. So it's tough. You know, I think that with critics for most artists, the idea would be something like this. You try not to look at it. You try to trust the people that you have always trusted, your half dozen close advisors. But they matter. And one of the reasons they matter is business. People go to plays that are well-reviewed. The other reason they matter is career. The, the Your next play will have more opportunity if the previous one is well-reviewed. So you can't really pretend they don't exist, but you try not to let it affect 
how you write, what you write, what you write next, how you feel about yourself. Uh, there's certainly playwrights who have been destroyed by both bad reviews and good ones. And sometimes a bad review can cost you a year. And sometimes a good review can cost you the rest of your writing life. So it's a very difficult thing for writers. I guess what I try to practice and what I certainly advise younger playwrights is to just try not to take any of it to heart if you can. I always feel like I can sit in an audience in the back of the house and I know whether the play is working or not, whether it's my play or somebody else's. And so that's who I trust. I trust what's in the room when it's happening. And the rest of it is a voice, might be a majority voice, might be a dissenting voice, but any individual opinion uh, is less important to me than the, the audience's collective opinion. Which comes about by just listening and observing. Yeah, that's right. And by being in the room with the show. It's a world of difference between when an audience is caught up with a play and enjoys it and one that they are sleeping through and thinking about what they're going to have for dinner afterwards. Everybody knows which play that you're you're doing. It's not hard to figure out. One more question, then I want to ask you about the origins of your career. For a long time, New York, Broadway particularly, was the place you all wanted to go. And then off-Broadway to some degree, New York. But that seems to be changing. Is it changing for you, John Colton? Back? I've had a lot of luck with plays in places other than New York. And so I do think that the thing of New York is New Yorkers tend to be strangely obsessed with New York. There's clearly great theater going on in Chicago. There's clearly great theater going on in San Francisco. There's clearly possibly the best theater going on in London, uh, as well as Sydney and Auckland. And, and just in terms of the English-speaking world alone, there's a million places. And so the idea that New York has a monopoly is a little crazy. I think that one of the reasons why New York is thought of as it's very difficult to launch a play nationally without having a, a review and a response from New York. So one of the things that playwrights sometimes think about is I'm going to get my play up in one of these places in New York because I want it to get done in all these other places. There's a lot of other ways to do it, but that's sometimes what people are thinking. I have relationships with theaters in a lot of different places, and uh, that's been a blessing. I think that doing work in other cities outside of New York has always been amazing. You know, one of the things about, especially about finding talent outside New York, acting talent, is that there is, in rep companies especially, there are great actors whose you don't know from television, who you don't know from anything, the people who go to the theaters at the, uh, at the Guthrie or wherever, uh, certainly know these people, but they are, to me, they're the best stage actors in the country. So getting your hands on those guys is part of the joy of, of getting out of town. So I think that's a, a big part of it for me. John Colvenbach, I went to IMDb, and aside from being in some Indian movie <laughs> as an actor, yeah. uh, none of your plays have, have moved over toward film. Is that because there's been no interest or you're not interested uh, or you don't like writing screenplays? Or? I don't know that there's been anybody who's been hot after the plays for a movie. The plays are so theatrical that I cannot even imagine what the 
translation to film would be. So I don't pursue that on any level. I think that the plays are the plays and uh, trying to make them into a movie would be trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. Have you thought about doing film yourself? I have a little bit. You know, I've written for movies, done rewrites on movies. I've written screenplays for movie companies. I've done all that kind of stuff. So every playwright has to make a living. So uh, (laughs) that's my secret income source. That's the day job. Yeah. I know a number of uh, writers who, uh, they can't talk about it, but they've lived on rewriting. Yeah. Uncredited rewrites is how a lot of people make a... A lot of people make a living, and it's it's also great work, and I love the movies, and so it's great to be a part of. Have any of your uncredited screenplays seen film? I, I can't say. I can't, it's hard because they, they're uncredited for a reason, but yeah, so yeah, I've had some good luck with it. Yeah, it's been a living, and so I have two sons, and we all eat, and so that's nice. John Colvin back. Let's go back a bit. Were you always interested in theater? No, not really. I didn't come from a any a background that included theater in any way. I don't come from a from theater people. I hadn't been to see a play until I was maybe twenty. What happened was I was interested in other things. I went to college, and I took uh, an acting class mostly, probably to be honest about it, because I wanted a class where I didn't have to read 400 pages a week. And so I took it as a non-reading class. And so, or a gut, as we used to call it. And then got bitten by the acting bug a bit. And then did, graduated from college and went on a tour at a Catholic university, a tour called the National Players, which is like a car and van tour. We did Much Ado About Nothing. And we did a musical version of Animal Farm and we traveled all over the country and drove through the night and set the set up and did shows at high schools and community centers and stuff. And then after that, I went to graduate school at Rutgers, but for acting. And I was there for three years. And then when I was getting out of Rutgers, everyone had to do a scene for agents on this night where you're, you know, you're showing yourself to the New York City agents. And we were looking for a scene and we couldn't find one. Everything had been done to death. All the John Patrick Shanley plays had been done a thousand million times. And so I ended up writing a scene, which my acting partner and I did at that thing. And that was really the first writing I ever did. Uh, And then soon after that, I wrote my first play in 1992. How did your first play get produced? We did it ourselves. So there was a guy whose aunt died and so, or his great aunt, I think, and we, he got $1,500 and so we thought, well, let's obviously we should put on a play. And so at that time in New York, you could rent a theater for, I think it was $1,250 for a week. What year was it? 1992. Okay. So we rented a place which doesn't exist anymore. Like a lot of those places, it was called the Greenwich Street Theater. I had a friend who was running a mini storage facility. So we rehearsed in a mini storage locker. It was a big one. It had to be the grimmest rehearsal space of all time. And then we, you know, the, the set was made up of, uh, you know, chairs from my apartment and a couch from somebody else's apartment. And then we wore our own clothes. I wasn't, I directed, I wasn't in it. And we put on a early play of mine uh, for seven nights. And we actually made a little money, which was a shocker. I don't know what we charged, 12 bucks a ticket or something. And then we made enough money to rent another space. So I did some rewrites on it and we put it up again this time for two weeks and some people saw it and they liked it. So then we moved it up to the Bronx to the Belmont Italian American Playhouse for a month. 
we ended up working on it for, I don't know, six months or something like that. So it was super seat of the pants, storefront, garage, theater, but that was the first, that was the first play. And then I wrote a play, a two-hander with the explicit intent of, uh, I wanted something that I could stage without having to rent a theater. So I wrote something, I wrote a kitchen sink play, basically, that you could stage in the kitchen. I thought maybe we would actually do it in my apartment. And it was a two-hander in real time, as simple a play as I could write. And the idea was we were going to do it in my tiny apartment in Chelsea, but then it got into someone's hands and they gave it to somebody and they gave it to somebody and they gave it to somebody. And we ended up doing that play. The premiere was in London on the West End for 750 people with Woody Harrelson and Kyle MacLachlan and John Crowley directing and it was this big, crazy production. So uh, not exactly what I set out to do, but it was uh, it was a cool one in its own way. How did you get involved with uh, The Magic? So I was commissioned by the guys at South Coast Rep some years ago, and I wrote them a play. And then Loretta Greco uh, was asked to direct the play. I had met her, but I didn't know her too well. And so we sort of met at the South Coast Rep play festival that they do, I think, in the spring. And so South Coast Rep ended up producing that play. It's called Goldfish. And Loretta directed it, and then she... I think it was her first season at The Magic, which might have been 2009. She produced it here in, in rep with another play of mine called uh, Mrs. Whitney. Politics plays a role in a lot of people's plays. Do you ever see it playing any role in yours, except in the sociological sense? I try to write non-topically as a rule. But I do think that there are, especially now, things politically and things culturally, which are impossible to ignore, impossible to pretend don't exist. And so what I try to do is to write an antidote, essentially, to whatever difficulty or whatever it is that's driving me crazy, whatever it is that keeps me up at night and is uh, causing me to scratch myself unrelentingly. So I try not to write specifically about, for instance, now it would be about the Trump administration, but you try to write something which is perhaps the opposite of the current political and cultural moment. Plays generally are the opposite of phones. A play is the opposite of a cell phone, in my view. A play is also the opposite of a dysfunctional Congress, in my view. Plays are about listening and about communion between the audience and the show. They're about live performance. They're about allowing yourself to be open either as an audience member or as a performer. So to me, all the things that plague us can be the opposite of those things can be manifested uh, on stage. Uh, so that's what I try to do. Working on Magic's thrust stage, is that really different from uh, working in a proscenium for you? Sure. The thing about the thrust you have to think about is you have to think about diagonals, all about diagonals. And so... For all of you young directors out there, if you put someone roughly in line with the VOM, then the other person needs to be on a 45-degree angle from them. And then, then at least every audience member can see somebody. That's how you have to think about it. But yeah, the staging, the staging problems are different. But the thing about a thrust, which is, I think, really, you can really take advantage of, is that you are afforded 
proximity and intimacy that you don't get with a proscenium. Sometimes prosceniums can be both distancing and a little bit of an abstracting kind of influence. And with a thrust, you can really get right in the play with the performers. And so that's, that's what's good about it. So I went to IMDb and I saw this thing called Kalapani that you were an actor in. Yeah. What's the story behind that? So I went to I went to Middlebury College and I was in college with a guy named Govind Menon and Govind was from India and he was from an Indian filmmaking family and so I didn't know this but we were in a class together. I guess we were in an acting class together and he called me years after I had graduated and asked if I wanted to come over and be a part of this Indian movie in India. So I went to India for three months with a couple of other guys who I went to school with and a couple of women that I went to school with. And we made this movie, Kalapani, which is a, uh, from what I understand, it is, well, what I know is that it's an Indian prison musical. It takes place in a prison and there's a lot of singing. I play a British doctor. I have, I think the worst British accent on record in any film ever made. Apparently, it's a movie that means something to people because it is about uh, the overthrow of the British Empire and the Brits out of India. And so it, I guess, is, from what I understand, I don't know if this is true anymore, but what I heard some years ago was that every Independence Day, the, on the Indian Independence Day, they play this movie on TV. So uh, it's had some lasting Lasting power. But it was an adventure. We had a crazy series of adventures from when we set foot in India till when we left. It was sort of an amazing experience. Did you sing and dance? I was in numbers, but I cannot sing or dance. But I was in some musical numbers. And one of them, I'm in the back of an ox cart. And I'm being pulled through the streets. And there are people dancing and spinning and saffron fabric being pulled up into the sky. But no, I, I don't... Sing or dance. So you're standing there and all this stuff is going on around while they're filming different takes. That's it. That's <laughs> it. No, it was, uh, it was cuckoo crackers. But it, it was, uh, we had a blast on that thing. And finally, Real to Real, the title, what's that about? So the woman in the show is a sound collagist and a bit of, uh, she's a bit old fashioned. And so she uses a Real to Real tape deck. Uh, in order to cut together pieces of sound and make these kind of autobiographical sound pieces. Uh, some of it she's talking, some of it is overheard conversation, and some of it is, uh, is sound effect. And so that's what it's about. And last question. Most playwrights, while they're working on one play, have several others in various really? stages. So <laughs> is this the only one you have? Uh, I don't have anything next. I never have anything next until I lock myself in my studio and start to work. So I literally have no idea what I'm going to do when this is done, but I'll go back home and try to figure it out. I'm Richard Walensky, and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theater Podcast. Mm-hmm.